Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning, bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. talk a kind of visit or revisit um, two major sources of Western civilization. You know, it's often very important from time to time to kind of to re- recollect the kind of fundamental sources uh, of our culture. Uh, and uh, the topic that I chose, uh, as you see from the subtitle, about two types of integrity, uh, actually interests me uh, something uh, in a very great way, and they are actually, um, as we say in, in rabbinic Hebrew, in Yana de Yomer. There are things that are happening today because what we find with Jeremiah and Socrates uh, are two forms of truth telling, two ways of telling the truth in public, and the risk of telling the truth, uh, and uh, the the uh, the obligation to stand firm in two different modes. Uh, We'll see from the side of ancient Greece with Socrates and from the side of ancient Israel with Jeremiah. But they really set up two fundamental contrasts. What the church father Tertullian said, the difference between Athens and Jerusalem. And uh, when Tertullian uh, made that question, he says, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? Right? Athens is the world of philosophy. Athens is the world of reason. Uh, Athens is the world um, of self-sufficient intellect. Athens is the world of abstract thought. And Jerusalem is the world of revelation. It's the world of uh, religion. It's the world of concrete embodiment of the divine word. So what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Well, we'll see that in some fundamental ways, Athens and Jerusalem are fundamentally different. There is a difference between Athens and Jerusalem. And then we're going to see what that difference is, and then some of the similarities between Athens and Jerusalem, and the difference in those similarities, because there's going to be a very great moment in the Middle Ages where some of the greatest Jewish philosophers, like Maimonides, tried to integrate Athens and Jerusalem, integrate the notion of ancient Greece and ancient Israel. And then we'll conclude towards the end with a couple of modern attempts to bring these two different dimensions uh, together. So when we think of these two different types, Uh, Greece uh, and Israel, let me just repeat to you again 
these kinds of issues, and they play themselves out uh, in the technical terms. So just keep this in mind before we take a look at the text, and you can see the difference. The word philosophy. The word philosophy is the love of wisdom, the love of knowledge. It stands over against ancient Israel, which is Ahavat Hashem, the love of God. The love of wisdom over against the love of God. The notion of inquiry into reason. The whole notion of what the rabbis, uh, of what ancient Greece called elenchus, the kind of search and inquiry into truth. And for ancient Israel and for the rabbis, it will be inquiry and study into the Torah and the revealed teaching. The notion of what truth will be in ancient Greece, the word for that is aletheia. It's recovering and uncovering something that was hidden. So there is a search to uncover something that's hidden, and that is done by personal quest by one's own reason. But the notion uh, of truth in ancient Israel and in Judaism is the word emunah. Not simply the notion of faith, but emunah is standing fast and standing firm. It's not uncovering something, but remaining true and firm and resilient to the divine word or the test of one's life in the divine word. When we think even of certain notions of justice, Plato's famous Republic, the search for justice, is a search in the abstract. It's an attempt to uncover what is the meaning of justice, what are its terms, how do things balance out in a just way so that we can talk about retribution and punishment. But for ancient Israel, justice becomes tzedek. It becomes the immediacy of living the just life and the challenge uh, of the just life. So from the very beginning, we see we have two cultural forms. The form of reason, the form of self-sufficient reason, because the world of ancient Greece and philosophy is not dependent on a divine revelation. It's natural thought. It's what you can produce out of your own thinking. It doesn't depend on a teaching or a lesson that we might say is supernatural in the sense that it comes from above the world of nature or outside the world of nature, that it's a truth that's given. And these produce two different types of persons. One will be the seeker after meaning and truth, and that will be the philosopher who lives in the city and is inquiring into the deeper sources of wisdom. And the other will be the prophet or the messenger who doesn't speak his or her own voice, who speaks the voice of another authority. So it's not the self who becomes the authority of one's own search, but the authority is from the outside. And one is sent to deliver a message that comes from the outside. So at the surface, it would appear that we have two radical differences, two radical cultural types uh, between the two. And we want to begin to explore how, what kinds of persons are cultivated in one place or the other. 
What kind of a person is cultivated in the academy? The academy, after all, is the source of, ultimately, the Western university, the place of search, formation of character through question and answer, the formation of personhood through one's personal reason over against the kind of person that's formed in a Beit Midrash or a Jewish study hall in which the sources of learning and the sources of meaning are divine sources and then reinterpreted by sages who are responsible for making these words meaningful in a particular culture. So let us begin uh, initially to take a look at Jeremiah and Socrates. Both risk themselves with a certain form of discourse. Both risk themselves in society and were brought to trial. And so it's very interesting that we can often see pivot points in Western civilization around certain kinds of famous trials, right? You can even think of the trial of Jesus. You think of Galileo. You think of many trials in the modern period. The trial becomes a pivot point for seeing what's at stake. What's at stake in a culture? What's at stake in speaking the truth? How does a person resist? What is the form of discourse, and how does that form a type of life? Uh, one of the uh, famous modern uh, philosophers uh, in France, a name may be known to some of you, Michel Foucault, uh, has written or lectured in the Collège de France about the notion of peresia, the notion of truth-telling. And that the notion of truth-telling, he says, is the mark of the philosophical character of the ancient philosopher, the person who puts themselves at risk who speaks the truth under all circumstances. And that that comes to a nub in Socrates' trial. And we'll see from the other side with the trial of Jeremiah, a very similar moment in which a crisis happens in culture and we can see really what is at stake in that culture. So we can see the difference between Greece and Israel and then ultimately between philosophy and religion uh, and revelation. So let me I ask you to turn to the sheet that you have about Jeremiah. And if you can follow the Hebrew, that will be great. If you look at the English, I will focus particularly on the Hebrew and translate it, and I'll mention the verses so that you can look at that if you're looking at that. But we want to look at the key terms, and we want to see exactly what's involved in this particular case. So. The event is taking place in the period of the time of King Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim, Jeremiah was called to prophecy around the year 628. There are problems of a little bit of the dating of 628 before the Common Era. Here we're about 20 years later. There are problems of the date because they're different sources. And the background of all of this, which will be summarized in chapter 26, but is described a little bit more fully in chapter 7 of Jeremiah, is that Jeremiah spoke out against hypocrisy. He comes to the people and he says that people are ganov, people were lying and stealing and doing all kinds of uh, 
misdeeds, and he, in a sense, is summarizing the Decalogue. And then people rush to the temple and they say, Heichal Hashem, Heichal Hashem, Heichal Hashem. The temple of the Lord is going to save us. And he said, you're turning the temple into a ma'arat pritzim, into a den of thieves. It's just that you've, you've misused this in terms of your hypocrisy. So initially, he does two things. He calls the people to account, and he speaks truth to power also against the institution of the temple, people using this to get certain types of favors and criticizing the people for doing this and the priests and those who were accepting the people under these circumstances. As a result of that, he was brought to trial. The summary of that and the trial is presented here in chapter 26. So let's take a look at a couple of key moments on this, and I'm just going to highlight a few phrases. So in verse 2, so the, it's referring to what took place in respect to this trial. And Jeremiah had said, Ko amar Hashem, that the Lord said, Amod bechatsar beit Hashem, go into the temple and speak against the people of Judah who come and sacrifice uh, in the temple of the Lord all these things and don't leave anything out. So already you hear the voice that says, Ko amar, thus you shall say. The prophet represents another voice and another discourse. The prophet does not speak in the prophet's own voice, but he dares to speak in the divine voice that speaks through him, and it becomes a challenge to institutions of power against certain types of issues of the covenant that the people had uh, not fulfilled. And then he goes on to say, perhaps they will return from their ways, their evil ways, and I, God, will have compassion upon them, uh, and I won't bring the evil upon them because of roa ma'alalei him, because of the evil things that they have done. So the contrast with the prophet over against the people is this issue of roa, of something evil that they've done which is against the covenant. Right? It's not a personal issue of thought. It's not an issue of conception. It's not a philosophical idea. They are rejecting the covenant, and the prophet is speaking for the covenant word and the teaching of the covenant in God's name. And then, of course, you can see the issue here of repentance, that the word itself can be changed. The divine threat can be changed if the people change their way. So the spokesperson is issuing a kind of warning to the people for the people to return to the covenant. So there is a set body of teachings or values or concerns that are, are the ideal, and the people are to conform or to embody that and live it out. This notion of embodiment is extremely important in ancient philosophy and extremely important in ancient Israel uh, and in Judaism. A couple of other notions. Um, here you can see in verse 4, the Lord said, um, if you do not go in the way of my Torah, betorati. so that is this issue of embodiment. It has to be practiced. The same way that philosophy will have to be practiced. You know, it has to be done in wherever one is, in the marketplace, in the city. 
But this is lelechet b'torah. In other words, to embody the life of Torah in a concrete way. And that becomes the embodiment of a divine wisdom, right? It's not a human wisdom. To know the word of God is different from the notion of wisdom. Just to give you one interesting phrase, and I mention it now because it will become a key phrase for Maimonides in his Guide of the Perplexed, um, which will try to integrate philosophy and religion. But it's a passage from chapter 9 where he says, and I'll quote it in Hebrew for those of you who know, and then we'll translate it. He says, Al yitalel gibor begevurato, vechacham bechachmato, ki imbezot yitalel ba'ashir ba'ashro, ki imbezot yitalel hamitalel haskel v'yadoa oti. So a person should not exalt themselves in wisdom. They shouldn't exalt themselves in power. They shouldn't exalt themselves in wealth. But what a person should exalt themselves is haskel, the knowledge of God. Haskel, to become cognizant via doa oti. So the ideal is knowing God, not knowing the self, not the search for the self. And we'll see when we come to Socrates, knowing yourself becomes the ideal, right? So haskel via doa oti, that is the ideal of knowledge, and the chokhmah is not a personal skill. That is rejected for a different type uh, of wisdom. Just a couple of other notions you see in verse uh, 7. So when the priests and the other prophets and all the people heard this, they grabbed him in verse, uh, at the end of verse 8, by pasuoto, that is to say, they put him in chains, they grabbed him, and they put him uh, uh, in, uh, in, uh, uh, in jail. Okay? And then people uh, gathered around, and they, uh, in verse 11, and again they say, this person has a mishpat mabet, is, capital, uh, is punishable by death. And then uh, when the people speak, so there is a risk to speaking the divine word and the truth. And then Jeremiah uh, says to the people, when he's challenged, he says, but the Lord has sent me. So the issue here of integrity is not to back down with the threat of death, not to back down under this notion of punishment, but to stand firm and to say that the Lord has spoken. And then again, you can see in verse 15, he said, to know that if you kill me, you'll be shedding innocent blood, that the Lord has truly sent me to you. So here you see a classic notion of the culture of revelation, the culture of ancient Israel and Judaism, the notion of a messenger of the divine word. And the chief, the chief emphasis here is the roah, the evil of their deeds and their hypocrisy and the challenge of death and the prophet who stands Firm. So now let us jump uh, to uh, to Jeremiah uh, to uh, Socrates. Now you all know the famous episode that's not reported here, but we'll come back to, is that it was that a person, a friend of Socrates, Herophon, goes to the Oracle of Delphi, and he said that Socrates, who's the wisest of all people, and the oracle says that it is Socrates. And Socrates takes that as a challenge to say he doesn't know anything and he's the wisest 
because he's the only one in Athens who knows that he doesn't know. And his whole search is to say, I know that I don't know, and I'm searching for knowledge, and everybody is claiming to know knowledge. Now, if we see the summary of the life of, um, of Socrates before we come to the trial uh, on page one, number one, which is reported uh, in, the, uh, in the history, the memorabilia of Xenophon, I want to just focus on uh, certain issues. So he says that the ideal here is what you all know, know thyself. In the Greek, it's gnothi seaton, know yourself. This becomes the ideal of philosophy and the ideal of Socrates. Look, jump down to the middle of the page. This leads me to think that he who does not know his own powers is ignorant of himself. Is it not clear, too, that through self-knowledge men come to such good and through self-deception much harm? And then in the next sentence, and by doing what they understand, they get what they want and prosper by refraining from what they do not understand. And then as a consequence, through the power of testing other men and through intercourse with them, they get what is good and shun what is bad. So this becomes this new ideal, to know oneself, not to know things, not to have a skill, he said, to be, to be why should a person simply want to gather goods to become a tradesman, to become a horseman, he would say, or a skilled person. If you don't know yourself, you haven't even begun the task of wisdom and knowledge. So the ideal of philosophy, the ideal of natural reason, which is so fundamental in a certain sense to the culture of the West, and the notion of what we'd say self-improvement or self-examination is the unexamined life is not worth living. Know yourself. One has to begin this radical task of self-inquiry. So the task of the philosopher and a person like Socrates is not simply to go out and teach skills, not even to teach certain kinds of activities, but to help the individual to turn inward self-examination. And this becomes a certain ideal, and we're going to see shortly how that is integrated into Judaism, but at this point, we see it as a contrast. You have to know yourself, not the divine word. You have to go through a period of inquiry and self-examination. Look on the uh, opposite column, about four or five lines down. He speaks, he, they, the translator, this is a, a famous translator, but uh, he calls it God, but it's really a kind of oracle or a kind of daimon that speaks to him. And he says, fulfill the, prof the philosopher's mission by searching into myself and other persons. And were I to deserve, and then he speaks about that he would not reject that task. And he then goes on to say, that this is going to preserve the city. Socrates says at a certain moment when he was challenged to, uh, to serve the city as a counselor and a wise person, he says, if I do that, I will be subject to death. And he says, what I am going to do is to lead people to the examination of their psuche, their, their psychology, their soul. And the search and the inquiry into the soul will save the city. As to say, it's not simply the larger political realm that's going to save the city, but the city is going to be saved one person at a time 
by internal self-examination. And you can see at the bottom of that second paragraph, yes, but I do care. The issue, that's a key word in ancient philosophy, care of the self. In other words, you want to know yourself, but the ideal is care of the self, to cultivate the self, to purify the self of bad thoughts, to enter into a deeper sense uh, of personal inquiry through interrogation, examination, and cross-examination. So I told you that was the Greek word that's called elenchthos, that is to say this constant questioning and answering. So it's the questioning and answering that each person has to do with respect to themselves, the honesty with respect to self, not with respect to what does this verse from Scripture mean? What is the best application of this? Not that form of inquiry, but an inquiry that becomes a self-inquiry. And you can see in the last paragraph, he says it quite explicitly. He says, to care about the greatest improvement of the soul. So that becomes this new task. And you can see already, you can uh, understand how this comes into Western thought and even to modern Western society as the care for the self, self-improvement, self-examination, and that that becomes the task. And sometimes it's contrasted with whether a person is going to be a good, upstanding person in the society. And in fact, that was why Socrates was in fact put on trial. He was put on trial because they say this form of inquiry into the self is undermining the pieties of the city. You are forcing us to examine the collective truths that we have sort of politicized. We have all these kinds of generalizations of what we take to be truth and take to be valuable, and you are really asking, what's the basis of it? What is its worth? What is the value of these uh, truths? And so they accused him of two things, of impiety, that he wasn't worshiping the gods of the city, and he was undermining them, and he was undermining the kind of virtues that everybody had been paying attention to. And that's why he says in the Apology, you've got it wrong, that the city is really going to be saved by people who are honest, who look inside, who reject hypocrisy, who turn inward for self-examination. And I am really not ruining the city, but I am the savior of the city. Paradoxically, he still will be put to death. But when he dies, he says in his last words to his friend, Crito, who wanted him to kind of escape, he said, offer a rooster to the gods. He said, in the sense that I am saving the city and I am for the value of the community, but I am doing this in a different way. So Socrates now becomes the principle that we hold very dear in our modern society. Not only the inquiry into truth, but the, the, the intense desire for self-examination and personal truth. The issue of self-reliance, the issue of relying on one's reason and, not, and speaking for oneself and not speaking for another. And of course, we can even see that in our modern difference of the institutions of education, right? The Western University, which is a continuation of the Academy of Ancient Greece, 
is that the teacher is a guide who helps the person form character through critical inquiry, that notion of critical inquiry and critical self-discovery, over against what we would say that the teacher from the side of religion in ancient Israel is teaching a given truth or a given body of knowledge and wanting to help people assimilate that, internalize that, understand it, or to bring it into the modern age. But it's not the self-serving notion uh, of, the, of the self in that way. So uh, you can see, if you turn the page, you can read these parts um, at home. Um, but uh, in the last part, in the defendant before the judges, in the bottom part, he again says that I am the person who's really saving the city. And a person has to, in the middle of the page, look to himself and seek virtue and wisdom. So we have two cultural types, two types of speaking. You speak for, a, for God or you speak for yourself. One is an inquiry into a given teaching. The other is the inquiry into the self. And this formed the classic contrast between philosophy and religion, between reason and revelation. And that became the classic contrast that began in antiquity and that was challenging to Jews. So before we make a mention of, uh, of Maimonides, who becomes an attempt to produce a synthesis between the two, we should think of a very early sage, the name Philo Judaeus. Maybe Philo is known to some of you who lived in the first century. And Philo really was dealing with the perplexed of his time, right? If you look at the works of philosophy, the works of reason, it becomes a real challenge. And placed in the most stark terms, the way he formulates it is the work of philosophy is a work of reason. It's a work of self-cultivation. It deals with abstraction and the cultivation of mind and the development of a moral and ethical sense so that one could come ultimately to contemplate God in the purity of thought. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. I certainly am. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. And he looked at the biblical texts, and both he said this and many in antiquity said, well, this is not a work of philosophy. It seems to be a bunch of stories, a lot of unethical stories going on. It doesn't seem to be a book that is cultivating a spiritual, progressive life of reason and thought. And so there were many already in antiquity, just the same as there were in the 13th century with Maimonides, who opted for philosophy and reason over against the biblical text. So Philo comes along. And he produces something that will be developed by Maimonides. That is to say, the two teachings are really one teaching. But they are teachings 
at two different levels of consciousness. The teaching of Scripture is a teaching of wisdom, but for everybody to grasp in the public way. The teaching of philosophy is the hidden teaching that is the hidden truth of allegory and that the meaning of scripture understood correctly is the deeper truth of philosophy for the philosophers. This is part of what Maimonides tried to do in the 12th and the 13th century when he spoke of two types of truth. And he begins the Guide of the Perplexed with the first 70 chapters is a philosophical dictionary showing that certain language in the Bible which had bothered lots of people, God having a hand, God having an eye, God having an ear, God speaking, are really allegories for deeper philosophical truths. So he was helping people understand that there is a deeper wisdom, a philosophical wisdom, that would lead one to a contemplative relationship with God. But one has to begin at the level of practice, which is the level of Scripture, but that the deeper meaning of Scripture is really a hidden philosophical text that would guide one along one's way. So the goal then is to become, in a sense, a philosopher, and part of the training of philosophy is the proper understanding of the purpose of the laws, what one should be thinking about when one is doing halachic and religious practice, what one should be contemplating when one is saying prayers. And these various aspects will purify the mind, purify the heart through the halachic process and bring the person to the philosophical ideal which is the deepest hidden ideal, but it's for the elite. But even the elite person has to live the life of Jewish practice because it is a pedagogy. It is a teaching form that allows a person through daily practice to develop and spiritually cultivate a religious life. So what I want to do at this point is to share with you uh, a, a more modern variation of this that may be known to some of you because as these ideals of wisdom and the ideal of religion uh, change over different periods of time, they take on very different forms and they come into different forms of integration. So I wanted to share with you at this point the very interesting way that Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik brings these two notions together in a very famous uh, book that many of you may have studied, and if not, I recommend it, The Lonely Man of Faith. And The Lonely Man of Faith is an attempt to understand the difference between chapter 1 of the book of Genesis and chapter 2 of the book of Genesis. And we'll see that this becomes another way of integrating the life of wisdom and the life of religious piety through that somewhat literal but also allegorical and philosophical reading of the two chapters. So for Soloveitchik, he says, you don't have to choose the one or the other or to say 
that philosophical wisdom is the hidden meaning of Judaism. The two are simultaneous and they can go side by side. What is the ideal that's reflected in the first chapter of Genesis, says uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik. He says it's this notion of this transcending God that we try to reach through wisdom, through science, through information, and through the attempt to create a universal society of justice. He wants to read the first chapter as the ideal and the goal of what we are as people who share the world with other people. We are in search of wisdom. We are in search of scientific truth. We are in search uh, of social remedies. We are in search of various kinds of issues. And this is, from the point of view of Genesis 1, a search of a high ideal that's almost unreachable and that it has this kind of yearning to reach the final goal. That becomes a task for all persons that we all share and that we can all share together. And then he contrasts that with the particular ideal, he says, that is the ideal of chapter 2, where a person searches for a wife, wants to establish a family. And for him, that becomes the prototype of finding the right community, finding a separate language of piety, not the shared language that we share with other people in the scientific or intellectual realm where there's a common utopian goal for the world, but the particular goal of a religious community, a community that shares a very particular language, a community that shares a particular way of living in time, that lives not the day-to-day -day cycle of, let us say, science or the stars and the sun and the moon, but lives a liturgical rhythm, that a person who lives the life of prayer, a person who wants to live within a more intimate setting and not only in the realm of the universal wisdom. So for Rabbi Soloveitchik, he challenges us with another way of integrating these two ideals that we can perhaps resonate to in the modern world where the one is not the hidden wisdom of philosophy within religion, but it's the fact that every person seeks out truth, seeks out collective fellowship with other people in the world community, seeks out an attempt to remedy things through justice and through medicine and through science. And he says that's the level in which all religions and all peoples share. They share at the common ground of the social good. And that it becomes what we would say a philosophical or secular language. And that has all the critical apparatus to it. And that becomes the paradigm of chapter one, the search for knowledge, the search for the good and the true that all people can share in from the point of view of medicine or science 
or whatever. And then there is this other side, that there is a spiritual yearning that's different from the yearning of philosophy. It's the yearning for the love of God. It's the yearning to come into more intimate contact with, the, with uh, spiritual truths. It's to do that within the intimacy of family and religious community and a larger framework of cultural memory. It's done through a very different way of remembering events and time. And it's done through a very particular cultural language. And he says, we don't have to choose that. We have our Jewish life and we have our public life that we share and that these two can find two ideals and two ways uh, of integrating the two. So what's interesting, at least, is that the, the search for truth and the search for integrity that we begin to see in antiquity with Socrates and in Jeremiah, each of which are representing sort of pure ideals. They are what uh, Weber talked about as ideal types. They represent kind of pure types of the kind, the philosopher over against the prophet. But each of these two are also concerned with living a life of truthfulness, living a life uh, of integrity, putting themselves at risk, and that these two ideals over time, particularly beginning in late antiquity, the synthesis between philosophy and religion, between reason and revelation, or between Athens and Jerusalem, come together. So we stand at a very particular point late in the spectrum in which these ideals have gone through a long 2,000 and more year process of transformation. And I dare say that each one of you, in different ways, is trying to create that particular synthesis, which we might call between uh, our commitment to universal values and ideals and reason, which is one form of thinking and one form of behavior, and the particular commitment of our Jewish lives, of the moral commitments that we have, the values that we speak about, the particular rhythm of life um, that we hold uh, so dear. And so we're trying to deal with that. But it's also very important, particularly looking back at the sources of Western culture. And I chose this topic particularly because the sources of Western culture in, Jude, in Jeremiah and Socrates take their particular starting point from two people who try to speak the truth. He says, I am speaking emet, I am speaking the truth that God said, and Socrates says, I'm speaking the aletheia, I'm speaking the truth. And they put themselves at risk for truth-telling. And so I want to leave you with that particular notion that the two fonts of our civilization start with two different types of persons, two different types of education, two different types of discourse, but it was the risk of truth-telling, right? what uh, Foucault calls veridiction, or we call the speaking of the truth. And the importance of that truth, one which we all hold deal, dear, namely the truth-telling of self-inquiry and open inquiry, that everything should be open, 
should be open to public discussion, to public debate uh, and challenge. That's what we would understand to be the ongoing offshoot of that open critical inquiry and the notion um, that we are committed to transcending values uh, that we uh, want to live and guide our life by. And each of us, um, I would dare say, I know for myself, tries in different ways and at different times of our life to bring these two ideals together as cultural models. So when you reflect on what it means to have an open society or a closed society, when we're talking about whether all things should be open for inquiry or only certain things should be open for inquiry, how much do you put yourself at risk or how much are other people daring to put themselves at risk? These are ideals that we have inherited and they're cherished ideals, but they come from these two fonts. And we want to kind of reflect on them to see how much we have to preserve this notion of saying the truth, risking oneself for the truth, um, and examining oneself and examining one's tradition so that it truly speaks the truth that we care about. So maybe I'll stop with that and we can open up with some questions. I'm, I'm, I come at this uh, from sort of a political and cultural way and look at these two trials and see that there's a similarity in that both Socrates and Jeremiah are speaking uh, piously, if you will, yet are accused of an impiousness. Impiety, yes. Uh, Jeremiah is, I believe, being uh, in, the, in his trial because he's speaking as if he's speaking from God. Right. And that's viewed as sacrilegious. Because people are accusing him of dissembling and speaking his own language. In fact, there is a place where um, the critique of the false prophets is they use the verb ganav. They steal words and they plagiarize. So they're not really speaking the divine word, they're pretending. Right. And, and, and he's claiming that this is my truth. Right. And Socrates is considered impious in, uh, uh, because he's speaking against the city in terms of the powers that be. Exactly, and their claims, and their claims of what's truth and what should go on. And there was a kind of oligarchy at that period of time. We're not talking about the, the, the total ideal of democracy. Uh, and he is standing up against that with all the risk that it takes. Right? So it, some of the similarity is that in both cases, there is a divine voice. For Socrates begins his way by a voice that says, know yourself or who is the wise person. He actually uses this notion of his own personal daemon, which is his own personal God, which we would sort of talk about as conscience. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that the small g, uh, sort of um, the, the translator is giving you a, a large g, but the, it's really in Greek a small g. And it really, the, the, the daemon or the divine principle doesn't teach positive things, it just gives restraint. It's a principle of restraint. So the principle that generates action is generating the query of who, who am I and what should I become and what is the truth and how am I going to find it? It's, so it's not giving you a body of information. It's giving you the challenge of the question. And the other side is the restraint. Whereas from the point of view 
of, of Jeremiah, there is already a body of teachings that were given uh, from, from Jeremiah's point of view by God at Sinai and the Decalogue, and that he is speaking for that, and because he claims that the temple will be destroyed, that he, uh, the people are saying God would never want to destroy his own temple, so he's speaking uh, with impiety in that sense. So that's a very nice insight that you have, uh, and it's, it's consistent. Let's take this question and we'll move on, yeah. Um, first of all, a, a comment. I was taught, and I forget where, that when Socrates says, you know, to Crito, offer a cock to Aesculapius, that was the traditional gift to Aesculapius upon recovery from a serious illness. Yes. So he's that, it, that he's recovering from the illness of life. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that is one. That is one of the famous interpretations because uh, that it's you know, he's giving thankfulness that he did that he has recovered from the imperfection of the soul <laughs> and that he did not corrupt his own inner being. There are other um, interpretations. One by a very uh, famous historian of religion, Dumézil, and that notion is that the cock to Asclepius is to give thankfulness that he could be a philosopher and that he could achieve a life of intellectual perfection and that he didn't fall into the trap of the, 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 um, the, the, disease, the disease of non-thinking. But I'm also wondering if within religion, uh, if religion becomes stultified, uh, as perhaps it was in Jeremiah's time, uh, are the authorities of religion, like the city of Socrates, uh, opposed to somebody saying, let's think about who we really are? And the example that comes to my mind right now, so very pertinent, is the, the, rabbinical, the Orthodox Rabbinical Council's ruling against the Roman clergy, and others saying, let's look at who we really are as Jews and really examine our exclusion of women Right. And, the, and the authorities, the stultified religious authorities, are saying, no. Well, that's, that, we is, that is another, that it becomes the version of trying to speak truth to authority, not necessarily or truth to power, but people who control certain kind of decisions. And the people who control the decisions control one's body and one's, one's uh, attitude in a lot of ways. And the question is, how far can you go uh, within the same society, or do you move out of that society? So it's a very complicated balance, but that is a very uh, excellent example of these cases where the criticism is at the moral level, at the legal level, and what kind of a life one is going to lead. He was offered the chance to leave Athens right. and refused. He said he couldn't exist as... Because he, because he stands firm for the fact that we have to live in a society. Yeah, so he doesn't reject the notion of law and society. He wants to perfect it from within. Uh -huh. And the within has to begin within the internal soul of the person uh -huh. and not just the abstract law. Unless, that's what he says. If you simply start at the level of law, and that's, that is the critique that he makes elsewhere. If I simply start at the level of law and I live in a democracy, I'm simply going to be subject to majority or minority of what that law is going to be. So his, his turnabout was to say, 
I'm not going to start at the abstract level of law because at the level of democracy, we're just dealing with majority, minority, or who's in power. So we have to start at the level of inner purity, of inner examination, and one person at a time. And that, that the, the authorities understood quite clearly that he is undermining the conventions of the society. What you're suggesting is a, is a dialectic between the, the, the appeal to authority it's a different type of a thing. Yeah, yeah. Appealing to the authority of the Word of God and the self-examination. Right. Yeah. So the uh, those two will come together in Maimonides. They come together very frequently in in later forms uh, of Judaism, where that inner inquiry becomes one of the forms in which one develops one's uh, uh, connection back to the tradition. You, you had your hand. Yeah. And then we'll come up. Trying to understand the reconciliation that you pose between the two, I don't want to misquote you, but as I understood it, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, God basically gave the rules for the common man to live the decent, moral, proper life. And the philosopher gave the idea that you could examine your inner self and come to those Beautifully. You, you, you stated it exactly the nub, because the ideal of philosophy from, or, or the ideal of the covenant was the ideal of political philosophy, the immediate attempt to create a good society. And so living the life of religion immediately puts persons, even at whatever level of intellectual or moral development, by practicing the law they're already involved in the practice of the good society. That's the way Maimonides would understand that. And only a person who has the courage, the intellectual fortitude, the skill to begin that abstract process of deeper inquiry into metaphysical or moral truths will take that at a deeper internal level. So philosophy is really for the elite. And the public nature of religion is for the common person. But the philosopher doesn't give up on the public task of the good society. He is also, or she is also, very much concerned with that inner repair of the soul of the self. And, but it takes on the form of the increasing knowledge of God, the perfection of the mind so that it becomes able to contemplate God, not just the soul. The soul becomes, as it were, a gift of God, and contemplating the soul is another way of contemplating certain divine realities. So you're absolutely right. It's an attempt to bring the two things together. But that was the great crisis beginning in the first and the second century. It was a huge crisis in the Middle Ages, um, and uh, it, it, it continued to be a different way of balancing Athens and Jerusalem. Right? The notion of creating the good society for all persons and how halakha is a pedagogical or training device and the good of the individual person who has to work on their own individual instincts. So for the philosopher, it's my own passions, my instincts, the way my mind might wander, how I begin to become single-minded, how I don't allow my emotions to get in the way of certain kinds of actions, that becomes a task not for everybody, but for particular persons. For the religious person, that can already be handled and directed by religion. 
the deeper focus of that is a philosophical or spiritual training, right? And that that becomes this notion uh, of inner balance, of inner structure. The Maimonides' uh, introduction to the, uh, to the uh, Ethics of the Fathers, Pirkei Avot, which is called the Eight Chapters, the Shemona Prakim, is in fact this way of training the self to deal with emotions of mind, of feeling, so that one can become uh, a focused person within the tradition. So he's actually using that as a way to teach everybody that practice of philosophy in a public manner. So he, read, he reads uh, The Ethics of the Fathers as also a kind of a work of pedagogy and a work of moral, spiritual training. Uh, read in a certain kind of way. Yes? So when a, pardon me, Professor, when a Jewish soul finds itself wondering about its own knowledge and the knowledge itself, does the Jewish way have an answer for that? Is, is that where, when the Jewish soul turns to Musa, for example? What, what is Judaism's answer when a Jewish soul does want to take a quest of, the under, of an Athens-style knowledge of self? Well, this is a very challenging question, but it would be answered differently by philosophers or as opposed to mystics or people from the perspective of the moral life. But the issue is that the search for the inner soul is to lead it into the paths of traditions, that tradition becomes a means of guiding it Towards, towards these higher goals, but through the pathways of religious practice. Or the contemplative practice is a supplement to these forms of religious practice. So uh, Maimonides, for sure, wouldn't talk about a Jewish soul. The, uh, certain mystics in the Zohar might talk about a particular characteristic of a Jewish soul. But the philosophers would not talk. There's a, we, we all, there's a human soul that has to be cultivated in a certain way, and that can be guided through the pathways of traditional practice, traditional thought, or traditional focusing. So for Maimonides, for example, the life of uh, religious observance or prayer is a way of focusing on action, on specific actions, on different things in the world. So he takes up that practice of how do you purify your intention and focus on certain things within the framework of religious practice. So each of the different traditions try to uh, blend these two things together to bring um, the person's soul into a, uh, a what would be called a, a, a spiritual pedagogy or a spiritual learning that one comes closer to one's ideal, right? The love of God or uh, the love of wisdom, uh, depending on the different traditions. Anybody else have? Yes, please. You, you used the, uh, the term synthesis a couple of times. Mm -hmm. and, and one has to wonder whether or not that synthesis has really taken place in terms of, if you look at the modern world, and you have Haredim on one side, and Christians who talk about an inerrant Bible on the other, and you have atheists and so on, you begin to wonder whether the synthesis has really taken place. You're absolutely right. I think, I think that I was talking about 
the cultivating of a certain kind of integration that Maimonides in the Middle Ages or certain moderns would take place. For a whole lot of reasons in modern religion, there's a fracturing and a splitting so that each is representing its own ideal truth. There's only wisdom in the secular realm. There's only wisdom in this religious realm or another religious realm. So there are competing bodies of truth. The, the, the greatest philosophers and spiritual person in the Middle Ages tried to find ways of a, uh, an integration or a balance between the two. But we're faced with the crisis because of, the break, of a lot of factors within modernity, this breakup of this courage to hold multiple realities together simultaneously or to integrate them, uh, Western thought and religious thought. And there's an attempt to purify the one and the other and to see them in an antagonistic way. So you have, once again, the wars of religion that were so destructive uh, in the 18th century and before. So we have a return in a more atavistic way to the wars of religion. But that's due to the crisis of the modern period and the breakup and the need to try to find a path of purity of one against the other as a substitute for nation states and so on and, and the like. Uh, but that's a, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, and that becomes um, this task. So it also raises this issue of what is the task within the university? How does the university cultivate the right kind of open-minded, thoughtful person when one side of the university is really speaking for the Genesis I ideal and it can't speak for the religious ideal, or the separation of church and state. So the issue of trying to hold the two together as two fundamental values that can correct and challenge each other in different, in different ways. Yes, Mona. You mentioned <coughs> One way to look at Athens is in terms of science and secular thinking. And I'm thinking, building on your comment about the uh, 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 in Haredi communities and even in modern Orthodox communities, which we hang out in, um, that there's a closed-mindedness about science, a closed-mindedness about personal quest in order to hold on to the tradition, that it becomes a sort of, it becomes a, a, a struggle to let in new ideas, to let in new, new thoughts, and, and, and the, the notion of a, a Jew going to Buddhism as opposed to, let's say, the Jewish text, because there's a sense that there isn't that openness. I think it's a real problem at this point, in, in, and, and that there's a defensive posture sometimes around thinking in terms of versus a more open, welcoming idea of how we can evolve. And I think it's a real struggle of how can the community maintain itself while feeling threatened by outside influences. Right, right. It's it's the relation between the, the inner community as an enclave, because part of the issue in modernity is what some sociologists of religion talk about, the creation of enclaves, where you can feel comfortable with a certain language and a certain structure and a certain uh, way of life. And you try to, because of the multiple options in the modern world, the notion of, of enclave becomes <coughs> more important. The enclave can be the particular interpretation of religion. But you're right. Um, there are these kinds of tensions uh, between these different languages, between these different ideals. Um, and that is uh, one of the, uh, the, the great tensions now, in, even in a so-called secular state, 
of these <coughs> kind of tensions and it, it comes uh, stronger. But and that's, it, it may even be just a, really a sign of the weakness of that ability to create that integration, which remarkably, for all the dogmatism of the Middle Ages, the great thinkers of the Middle <coughs> Ages could put these two things in tandem and in relation and to struggle with them. Um, the crisis of modernity has been to split um, and to create small subgroups that are competing subgroups um, because of the confusion of what truth is. And so there becomes a smaller enclave that defends itself with a particular method or a particular value that people are afraid of losing under the multiple claims of truth um, in the modern world. So anyway, what I was hoping um, to leave you with then is that you know, we're, 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 not, we're not stillborn and the modern society doesn't wake up one day uh, thinking things afresh, but we're the heirs of this huge cultural transformation uh, and somehow to reflect on where we stand now and what's at stake with a whole series of concerns um, has uh, developed and been transformed over the last 2,000 years. And uh, I think within each of us and within the religious or secular communities that we live in are trying to find new patterns for the right moral and spiritual path uh, for all of us to follow. So uh, I hope that you'll go back and take a look at these sources again or um, reflect on these issues with your friends because the issues far transcend Socrates and Jeremiah as I was trying to suggest. So thank you so much. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you've just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to Valley Beit Midrash to support the expansion of meaningful Jewish education. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.